What if I were to tell you a lot of modern technology can be traced back to simple inventions from the late 19th century? I suppose that wouldn't be too surprising. A lot of modern communications, for example, have their origins in the 19th century, such as the telegraph machine, which required wires to be strung around the world so that basic electrical signals, either on or off, could be sent. This fundamental infrastructure of wires became useful later when voice was enabled. We already had the knowledge on how to string cable everywhere, and now we can string cable into people's homes. What if I was thinking about wireless technology that we use today? That something relatively simple, first produced in the 19th century, a player piano could directly lead to something very complex that we use every day in our mobile devices. I'm talking about Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. That's a bit of a stretch, perhaps. What's even more of a stretch is that this technological advancement came from a woman once described by a Hollywood film producer as the most beautiful woman in the world. This, then, is a story about that woman, a hacker from, of all places, Hollywood. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure, it's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm going to be talking about Hedy Lamar, an Austrian-American immigrant who grew up inventing things and even dated Howard Hughes and had the use of his facilities and scientists, but who is perhaps better known for the dozen or so motion pictures she starred in. Lamar's famed beauty inspired female characters such as Batman's Catwoman, and Walt Disney's Snow White. Yet, with an estimated IQ of around 160, the actress was also responsible for developing the underlying technology that is present today in Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. Yeah, this is one fascinating woman. This is also our hacker from Hollywood. Hedy Lamar, originally known as Hedwig Eva Maria Kiesler, was born in 1914 in Austria. Her father was from what is now the Ukraine, and her mother was a pianist from Hungary. At the age of 12, Hedy entered and won a beauty contest in Vienna. So, from an early age, she was seen as someone who was beautiful, often undercutting her innate intelligence. And then people have the idea of I'm a sort of a stupid thing. I never knew I looked good to begin with, because my, my mother wanted a boy named Georg, George. So unfortunately, I didn't become that, and she wasn't too thrilled about that. <laughs> More formative, then, was the time she spent with her father. He would often take Hetty out on long walks in Vienna, explaining how various forms of turn-of-the-century, 20th-century technologies functioned. This battle between brains and beauty more or less defined her life, and time and time again, beauty continued to win out, at least in the short term. Hetty began her acting career at the age of 16 in an Austrian film, Geld auf der Straße, or Money in the Street. She was also best known at the time for her lead in a controversial Austrian film known as Ecstasy, 
in which the 18-year-old Hetty appeared nude, having been fooled by the producer into thinking the camera was too far away for her to be seen. The film won some artistic praise, but it was also banned in several countries, including Germany. That same year, Hetty married Frederick Mondal, who was a successful arms dealer for the Italian dictator Mussolini, among others. Lamar, it was said, would often sit in on his business meetings, and while the others in the meeting would think she had no idea what they were talking about, she listened intently. This knowledge would come in handy later on. About four years later, when Nazi Germany took over Austria, Lamar left Mondal, literally left him. The story goes that she was wearing all her jewelry one night when she went to dinner with her husband and never returned, having slipped out. Hetty Lamar's son, Anthony Lodar, later said, One evening, Hetty drugged the maid, literally, with sleeping pills. The maid went to sleep and... Hetty escaped out the window, made her way to Paris, then over to London. Lamar would have been 23 at the time. In 1937, Lamar arrived in England, where she had a chance encounter with Louis B. Mayer, the second M in MGM. Mayer thought she could become another Greta Garbo or Marlena Dietrich. She literally turned down his initial offer of $125 a week. Nonetheless, she did book herself on the same ocean liner as Mayer. She came to the United States on the Normandy. While crossing the Atlantic, Lamar managed to convince Mayer to give her a $500 a week contract instead. Mayer then persuaded her to change her name to Hetty Lamar, if only to distance herself from the ecstasy reputation. It also offered her a clean start in Hollywood. In 1938, Mayer began promoting Lamar as the world's most beautiful woman. And that year, she starred in the film Algiers with Charles Boyer. What's your name? Gabrielle. They call me Gabi. Married? No. Widow? No. Why not? Who are you with? My fiancé. What is he like? Jealous. Oh. Stopping at the hotel? I let him. <laughs> what are you laughing at? Nothing. Too bad. Too bad? Too bad I don't know you better. Why? Because I would slap your face. When people laugh around me, I like to know why. So by the age of 24 years old, she'd fled her home country and landed in Hollywood, California. Her life was just getting started, and the people she met was just getting exciting. The goal of aviators is now the non-stop flight around the world, and Howard Hughes has taken a big step towards attaining it. Leaving Burbank, California, the millionaire sportsman and film producer calls at New York on his way to Europe and circles the World's Fairground. The fair has christened his Lockheed monoplane New York World's Fair 1939, and these pictures of the machine flying over the Manhattan skyscrapers were brought across by Howard Hughes himself. With a crew of four and a tailwind to help him at the end of the journey, he flies straight to Paris in 16 hours 35 minutes, less than half the time taken by Colonel Lindbergh the only other man who has ever done it. It was in about that same time frame, about 1938 or so, that she met Howard Hughes. This wasn't too surprising. He was known among the Hollywood producers at that time. 
Hughes had financed a lot of movies in Hollywood in the 1920s and 30s and was now using some of his wealth to fund various research projects. Lamar was different from other Hollywood stars, and Hughes and Lamar bonded over their love of invention. While they were romantically together, Hughes gave Lamar complete access to his team of scientists. He also gave her a small set of equipment to use in her movie trailer while on the set, allowing her to work on her inventions in between movie takes. Hughes would also take her to his airplane factories, where he would show her how the planes were being built. He told her he really wanted to create faster planes so that he could sell them to the U.S. military. I thought the aeroplane was too slow. I decided that's not right. It shouldn't be square, the, the, the wing. So I bought a book of fish and I bought a book of birds and then used the fastest bird, with a, connected it with the fastest fish. And I drew it together and showed it to Howard Hughes and I said, you're a genius. And once again, there was the problem. Lamar was often seen as only glamorous, yet she was more interested in using her brain than capitalizing on her body. She said famously, any girl can be glamorous. All you have to do is stand there and look stupid. But Lamar clearly wasn't stupid. Improving things comes naturally to me, she said later in life. As proof, Lamar had created an upgraded version of a traditional traffic stoplight. This is the amazing thing about Hedy Lamarr. She left school when she was 15 years old to become an actress. She loved chemistry, we know that. She invented, during that period, a tablet that would fizz up and make a cola. I had two chemists, our choose gave me to do that. You know, during the war, nobody had Coca-Cola and I wanted to compress it into a tube. So that servicemen and, and factory people, so the, all they had to have is water and put it in. All that, however, would pale in what Lamar would do next. a small dinner party in 1940 at the home of actress Janet Gaynor and her husband that Lamar met George Antheil, who at the time was best known for writing film scores and experimental music. Everyone at the dinner, however, was talking about the upcoming war with the Germans. In September 1940, a passenger liner, the SSS Benares, set sail for Canada with 100 British children on board. When the Allied ships escorting the Benares departed, a German submarine torpedoed. Of the 406 passengers and crew, 100 were children, and of those, only 19 survived. Antheil said later, Hetty did not feel comfortable sitting there in Hollywood and making lots of money when things were in such a state. Crowded radio frequencies can have life-and-death consequences. During World War II, the U.S. and British-made radio-guided torpedoes were often subject to frequency jamming by the Germans. Having once been married to Mendel, Lamar already had knowledge on munitions and various weaponry. So Lamar and Antheil began tinkering with ideas. My mother came up with the idea of all these frequencies should be changing all the time in sync with each other. But she didn't know how to make that happen. Antile did. In the 1920s, he'd worked with player pianos, also known as pianolas. 
These were musical devices from the late 19th century that used pneumonic or electromagnetic mechanisms to operate the piano action. This was done with programmed music recorded on either perforated paper or, in rare instances, metallic rolls. Sales of player pianos had peaked in 1924 and then declined as the improvements in phonograph recordings continued. Mind you, World War II was in 1940. In 1924, Anthill's grand experiment was known as Ballet pour Mécanique de Percussion. This was written for 16 synchronized player pianos accompanied by two grand pianos, as well as three xylophones, four brass drums, a gong, three airplane propellers, seven electric bells, and of course, a siren. Well, needless to say, it wasn't very successful. And part of it was keeping the 16-player pianos in sync. So he rescored it with fewer player pianos and re-premiered it two years later in Paris. So, Anhel had experience with making machines talk to each other in sync, or at least trying to do so. What Lamar wanted was to sync the signals between the transmitter and the receiver together. The analogy was the script, the paper punch-outs that would tell the player piano which keys to strike and how frequently. There would be two scripts, then, one for the sender and one for the receiver. The boat and the torpedo would then change frequencies in sync. Any attempt at jamming those communications would be short-lived, as the frequency would change so often and so rapidly. By the end of 1940, the two inventors sent their rudimentary sketches to the National Inventors Council, a clearinghouse for military and defense inventions submitted by civilians. The council encouraged them to continue their work, so they started with 88 frequency changes. Why 88? Well, there are 88 keys on a piano. A short time later, they completed their design and presented it to the U.S. Patent Office. The patent clearly shows a paper tape in one of the drawings and states, quote, We contemplate employing records of the type used for many years in player pianos. The patent also describes a clockwork mechanism that could be used to ensure that the transmitter and the receiver tapes started at the exact same moment. Any deviation from a simultaneous start would have prevented that synchronization. In addition to the tape-driven frequency hopping, the patent outlines a method for sending false signals that further enhance the anti-jamming properties. By 1943, Lamar and Anhal received their patent for their work, Frequency Hopping Spread Spectrum. They immediately submitted it to the U.S. Navy, which rejected it. The U.S. government immediately classified the technology, however. The Navy thought the mechanism proposed was too bulky to be incorporated on the average torpedo. And Anheil thought the people who vetted their invention, quote, read no further than the words player piano. My God, I can see them saying, we can have a player piano on a torpedo. Perhaps the player piano analogy had gone too far. The war ended without this new technology being used, and it was not until 1957 that further development on spread spectrum occurred. 
It was first implemented on U.S. Navy ships in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis, 20 years after the concept was born. And it wasn't until the 1970s that frequency hopping spread spectrum was declassified by the U.S. government. That's when commercial development began. Frequency hopping spread spectrum has been used in Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, and even cellular communications as a means of avoiding interference and also preventing eavesdropping. The concept is pretty simple. The available frequency band is divided into smaller subbands. Signals frequently change or hop their carrier frequencies in a predetermined order. Interference at a specific frequency will only affect the signal during a very short interval. In 2G and 3G cellular communications, CDMA stands for Code Division Multiple Access, and it uses frequency hopping spread spectrum. Although the global standard at the time, Global System for Mobile, or GSM, did not. Subsequent 4G and 5G technologies don't use frequency hopping. They've advanced to other methods to avoid interference. The majority of early Wi-Fi developments used frequency hopping spread spectrum technology. The original IEEE 802.11 standard stated that each hop must consist of its frequencies, one megahertz wide. Because the spectrum specified the maximum bandwidth of 79 megahertz, the maximum number of hops possible would be set to 79. These individual hops were then arranged in a predefined sequence. Frequency hopping spread spectrum was one of the original technologies defined for RF communications using 2.4 gigahertz ISM band for legacy Wi-Fi radios. Specifically, frequency hopping spread spectrum transmits data by using a specified frequency set for a period of time known as dwell time. When the dwell time expires, the system changes to another frequency and begins to transmit on that frequency for the duration of its dwell time. Each time the dwell time is reached, the system changes to another frequency and continues to transmit. A majority of these Wi-Fi radios were manufactured between 1997 and 1999. This then evolved into direct sequence spread spectrum instead of frequency hopping spread spectrum, where the carrier does not drop or change frequency and remains centered on one channel that is 22 megahertz wide. Today, we no longer use frequency hopping for Wi-Fi. We have moved on to other RF technologies, such as orthogonal frequency division multiple access. However, we use frequency hopping still for our Bluetooth devices and other radio transmitters. Bluetooth mitigates the risk of collisions through its use of spread spectrum technologies. When two devices are connected, this involves a specific technique known as adaptive frequency hopping. At each connection point, a pair of connected devices have the opportunity to use their radios to exchange packets at precisely timed intervals. But in addition to this, at the start of each connection, frequency hopping occurs, with a radio channel being deterministically selected from a set of available channels using the channel selector algorithm. That's easy to say. Throughout World War II, Lamar insisted that she wanted to join the National Inventors Council. 
She was reportedly told by council member Charles Kettering and others that she would be better in helping the war effort by using her celebrity status to sell war bonds. America's war bond campaign is in full swing, and it's not surprising to find that Hedy Lamarr is a bestseller. When this picture was taken at Newark, New Jersey, she told us that her record was $3.5 million worth to date. That surely entitles her to give the Churchill sign. Lamar participated in a war bond selling campaign with a sailor named Eddie Rhodes. The deal was this. Rhodes would be in the crowd at each Lamar appearance, and she would call him up on stage. She would then flirt with him before asking the audience if she should give him a kiss. The crowd would say, yes, to which Hetty would then reply, she would if enough people only bought war bonds. After the bonds were purchased, she then would kiss Rhodes, and he would head back into the audience. Then they would head off to the next city. While working with Anne Heil, Lamar said she was thinking of quitting MGM and going to Washington to offer her services in the newly established Adventures Council. In 1945, Lamar did leave MGM, but she didn't go to Washington. Instead, she became a Hollywood movie producer on her own. And in 1946, she and a partner made the thriller The Strange Woman. Men love red lips. Let's go down and meet the packet. Why should I? The sailors will all come up here anyway. Oh, but the best ones get picked off down at the dock. Listen, honey, with your looks, you don't have to worry. Why, you can get the youngest and the best-looking men on the river. I don't want the youngest. I want the richest. Jenny, that's a recipe for trouble. That film went over budget and made only minor profits. She then produced and starred in A Dishonored Lady, another thriller. Why do you have to go back to bed before Freddie Fancher? You haven't even given me a chance to make love to you. You've been doing all right. You know something? It's awfully hard making love to a woman who makes more money than I do. It'd be much easier if you made love to me. Would it? No. You're trying to give me the brush off, are you? Well, finally, we understand each other. Dishonored Lady also went over budget, but it was a commercial success. And in 1948, she starred in a comedy with Robert Cummings called Let's Live a Little. Are you careless about shaving? Huh? Do you keep putting off the haircut you need? Well, what about them? You don't like women, do you? Women mean nothing to me. Absolutely nothing. The most uh, beautiful, glamorous, go- gorgeous woman in the world could be uh, right here in this room, and I could kiss her. Yes, yes, kiss her. And uh, absolutely nothing. That I'd like to see. In 1949, Lamar returned to major filmmaking. She enjoyed her biggest commercial success in Cecil B. DeMille's Samson and Delilah. Go, Delilah. Run. Into the courtyard. No. Death will come into this temple. The hand of the Lord will strike. I will not be afraid. You must leave now. Wherever you are, my love is with you. Go. That film became the highest grossing film of the year. It also won two Oscars, one for art direction and one for costume design. Based on that success, Lamar continued to act into the 1950s, but her career wasn't advancing as much. 
1953, she became a naturalized American citizen. And in 1959, the frequency hopping spread spectrum patent expired. That also happened to be the same year that George Anthal died. In 1960, Lamar received her star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And by the late 1960s, she was resigned to doing talk show appearances. Here she is with Merv Griffin in 1968. I want to be a simple, I am, I mean, very simple, complicated person. (laughs) The 1970s then were a decade of increasing seclusion for Lamar. She was offered several scripts, television commercials, and stage projects, but none really piqued her interest. In the 1980s, she retired to Florida. It wasn't until the end of her life that Lamar was recognized for her technological achievements. David Hughes said he had learned about Lamar's innovative efforts through his early 1990s Wi-Fi research under a grant from the National Science Foundation. Hughes followed up on his NSF research by lobbying for Lamar and Anheil to receive the 1997 Pioneer Award given by the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I was different, I guess. Maybe I came from a different planet, who knows? (laughs) (laughs) But whatever it is, inventions are easy for me to do. Praise for Lamar continued in the latter years of her life. She became the first woman to receive the Invention Convention's Bowlby Nass Spirit of Achievement Award, known as the Oscars of Inventing. The following year, Lamar's native Austria awarded her the Victor Kaplan Medal of Austrian Association of Patent Holders and Inventors. I want to sell my life story to Ted Turner because it's unbelievable. The opposite of what people think. The brains of people are more interesting than the looks, I think. Then, after the turn of the millennium, in early 2000, Hedy Lamar died in Florida of a heart attack. She was 85 years old, but her story is still being told at conferences such as the Chaos Computing Congress and others. And on November 9, 2015, a Google Doodle celebrated Lamar's 101st birthday. Give the world the best you have and you'll be kicked into the sea. Give the world the best you've got anyway. Want to know more about Hedy Lamar? I highly recommend you take the time to watch an outstanding PBS documentary, Bombshell, The Hedy Lamar Story. I first encountered this story as a footnote when researching my first book, and I'm happy to see that there are more and more testimonials and documentaries coming forward about Hedy Lamar. Throughout her life, she struggled with the fact that people saw her as a beautiful woman, and perhaps she was. The point, though, is that she had a brain behind all of that. She was actually inventing things all the time, and it's only now that we're beginning to recognize that someone could be both. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at Robert Vimosi on Twitter, or join me on subreddit or Discord. You can find the deets at hackermine.com. The Hacker Mind is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free, by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mind, I remain the brains before beauty, Robert Vermeersen. <laughs>